You know, you have lots of questions. If you think that you've developed symptoms. Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Your host is Dr. Ted O'Connell, family physician, educator, and author of many well-known medical textbooks. He also founded the nation's first fellowship to formally combine community medicine and global health. Welcome to COVID-19, Common Sense Conversations about the Coronavirus Pandemic. I am Dr. Ted O'Connell, the host of this podcast. My guest today is Dr. Ken Rosenthal, who is a virologist and immunologist and professor at the Augusta University, University of Georgia Medical Partnership. Dr. Rosenthal received his undergraduate degree from the University of Delaware, a PhD in biochemistry from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and completed a postdoctoral education in tumor virology and immunology at Harvard Medical School and Dana-Farber Cancer Center. He has done research on herpes simplex virus, antiviral drugs, and vaccines, including vaccine therapy for herpes simplex virus, breast cancer, and rheumatoid arthritis. And he's working with a team on the development of a COVID-19 vaccine. Dr. Rosenthal is a master teacher and has taught medical students, residents, and physicians in Ohio, Florida, and Nevada. He is the author of the best-selling textbook, Medical Microbiology, now in its ninth edition and published by Elsevier and used by students around the world. Ken, thank you for joining me on this podcast. Is there anything else you'd like to tell our audience about yourself? Well, one of the things I've always enjoyed is teaching people, uh, not just medical students, but I enjoy making things a little bit simpler than many of my colleagues. I'm really excited to have you on this podcast. I'm sorry to cut you off there. Um, Being a virologist is exactly the person who we want on this podcast. And being an educator, I'm really looking forward to what you're going to have to teach our audience. Okay, let's, uh, let's start. Okay. Before we get started, I, because things are evolving so rapidly, I do think it's important to say that today is March 16th, 2020. Some of what we talk about could change in the, in the weeks and days ahead. So I, I just want to kind of timestamp this discussion. Um, but as I said, Ken, your expertise in, in microbiology and viruses should be really helpful for our audience. So let's dive right in here. Can you tell us a little bit about what a virologist and immunologist actually does? Well, um, we basically study uh, viruses and how viruses infect people and, and the consequence. And what's very interesting, to me at least, is that oftentimes the disease that a virus causes is, is actually due to the immune response that's generated to the, the virus infection. and so. We have to suffer a little bit in order to get better. But the key is, once you've been exposed the first time, for most, most viruses, uh, the immune response will be ready for the next time and prevent any serious or significant infection or consequence afterwards. And so maybe then, Ken, tell us a little bit about the idea of this immune response in relation to the COVID-19 virus that, that we're seeing. Well, let me go back one step and let's talk about the virus itself first, okay? COVID-19 is actually a cousin 
to a virus that causes uh, the common cold. So coronaviruses have been infecting people for a long, long time. The difference is that COVID-19, like its other two cousins, MERS and SARS, um, originated as animal viruses. And as animal viruses taking a jump to humans, the rule is that they will be more problematic for humans because neither the virus nor the human beings have developed a relationship. Part of that relationship is an immune, uh, immune response that's not overactive or too um, react, reactive. Um, the COVID-19 virus as a coronavirus has a membrane surrounding it, but this membrane, which is like a soap bubble, is then surrounded again by proteins that form a corona, a covering that makes this virus very, very stable. And un unlike some other envelope viruses like flu, this virus has the ability to um, not only infect our respiratory tract, but it can also go through our gut. And so it can be transmitted not only in aerosols, when, when we breathe, when we cough, when we sneeze, but also by the fecal-oral route, going through the GI tract and coming out the other end. And again, that's one of the reasons why washing hands is so important as a means of um, preventing transmission of this virus. And we'll get back to that again later. Um, so that's uh, a little bit about the virus. Again, the virus has a unique structure. The structure defines a lot of what this virus can do and how it does it. And um, the other parameter which I should bring up at this point is that unlike the human respiratory coronavirus that causes the common cold, this virus can uh, replicate, can make more virus in cells at the higher temperatures in the lower lung. So the common cold viruses are stuck in the upper respiratory tract, in the nose, because it's cooler there. But down in the lung, it's body temperature, 37 and above, and the virus and the COVID-19 can replicate at those temperatures, as can SARS and MERS. And because it does that, it can set up a more serious and significant infection, and the body works much, much harder to eliminate and get and deal with that infection. So let's progress from now with more questions. Yes, absolutely. That was I can see already why they're why you're considered a master educator. The the way you explain things is just super helpful. So you've mentioned the importance of hand washing, and we've been hearing about that. We're also hearing about social distancing to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Can you tell us a little bit more about how the virus spreads and replicates, or, or have you adequately covered that in talking about the respiratory droplets and then the fecal-oral transmission? Okay, no, let's, let's go into that a little bit further. When we breathe, uh, we are actually... Uh, when we exhale, 
we're actually exhaling water droplets. And these water droplets can come from uh, our lungs. Um, and if we cough, then we're expelling these water droplets as well. These water droplets are the right size to carry particulate matter, including viruses. Now, the coronavirus in its aerosol droplet probably goes out about three or four feet, and then gravity pulls them down to the ground. So it's important to stay about three or four feet out of the range of these aerosols, and that's the distancing that people talk about. Um, some other viruses are uh, wafted, essentially spread on air currents in their aerosols. And so the um, distance would have to be even lo longer. But three to four feet seems to be reasonable for these viruses. The, so we, go ahead. I was just going to say, so we think about it kind of like range for, a, for an NBA shooter. Every, every, each shooter has their range. These are not Steph Curry range viruses. They're they're more mid range. Is that right? Well, these are layups. Layups. Yeah. Got it. Got this it. Is, this is more my style. <laughs> Sorry, I, I cut not, you off a little bit, but go on. Go ahead and on with your um, with this discussion yeah. about spread. Okay, so th that's how it can spread easily from one person to another by those droplets. The second is um, on our hands and on surfaces. When it lands on surfaces, the virus can last for about three to four hours at least, maybe up to a day. And when we touch those surfaces, we can pick up the virus on our hands. And when we bring our hands up to our nose or mouth, we give the virus a chance to enter those places. So we call these hands with their 10 deadly weapons the means of transmitting viruses to ourselves. Also, when other people touch their nose and, and mouth, they may have the virus on their hands. And if we shake hands, then um, we can pick up the virus from them uh, and then bring it to our faces. So that's why maybe an elbow bump or a fist bump might be a better greeting than a good old fashioned handshake these days. Right. And um, we, we even see people going to foot bumps now just to give, you know, an extra degree of safety, right? Yeah. Well, there is that too. Yes. Yes. Um, so that's how um, the hands can transmit it. Um, the key being, again, that this virus is pretty stable and can last on surfaces and on hands for a fairly long time, and so we have to be careful uh, about that kind of contact because if somebody has sneezed or coughed and put a lot of aerosol onto a surface, then we have a greater potential of picking up that the virus. Got it. So it's all about kind of the amount of load, the amount of virus that's actually there that we're then transmitting, right? It seems to, to be to some degree that the more virus that you pick up, the more significant the issue, the, the problem. Um, it seems that perfectly healthy people 
who are in the medical profession in China who were exposed to large amounts of the virus were getting sick and, and uh, passing from the, the disease. But other people who are not exposed to this, that level of, ex, uh, of virus seem to be able to tolerate it better. They may get sick, but they don't seem to be as at as high a risk. Is that unique to COVID-19, or do we see the same thing with the other common viruses that we see? The, there's a dose effect for all viruses. The more virus you get infected with, first of all, the more likely it will find a place to do its thing. And the second is the, more, the faster it will go and the harder the body hat, uh, will have to work to eliminate that infection. Got it. So we know that this virus originated in Wuhan, China. That's been spread all over the news. Uh, can you tell us, Ken, what you know about how it originated and how it was transmitted to humans? Well, the this particular virus is, um, as I said, an animal virus that jumped to man. And the suggestion is that it jumped from an exotic animal that the Chinese use for food, uh, possibly a pangolin, which they sell at these uh, specialized markets in China. And so similarly, the SARS virus was brought from uh, into a market um, with a, an exotic animal, and then it jumped to man and then spread from there. Um, so as a, in a combination of bringing, um, these animals in close approximation with people and then having the population density of China, it's, a, it could, it is a, a breeding ground for these unusual infections. Fortunately, most animal viruses stay in the animal. But occasionally, unfortunately, like this one, and like SARS, and like MERS, uh, they jump from animals to man. It's a similar story that happened with HIV, which was an, a simian virus, uh, uh, a virus of chimpanzees or um, apes that jumped to man. And uh, we know how devastating HIV has been. Right, right. Absolutely. So you mentioned already the idea of viral load, Ken, in terms of how sick somebody's going to get. Are there any other factors that are predictive of why some people have mild infections after getting COVID-19 and some people have serious and lethal infections? Well, actually, that's a very good question. The, um, the at-risk population are the elderly meaning I'm in, in that population, unfortunately. Um, people who have compromised immune responses and people who have inflammatory conditions and, and lung problems. What it means is that in many cases, these people are at risk because either they underreact to the initial infection or overreact to the infection Either way, 
they're not Goldilocks type baby bear type situations. And um, the immune response kicks in and goes into overdrive. Ultimately, it's the inflammation that the body creates that is going to cause the significant disease and the response of the body to the presence of the virus. One of the things that happens in a virus infection like this one is that the, um, the genome, the nucleic acid of the virus, stimulates the production of cytokines. These are like um, immunological hormones that turn on other cells. And when the, the COVID-19 um, genome, nucleic acids, uh, turn on the response in humans, the response becomes very, very heavy. And this can cause shock and very s- severe outcomes. The mildest form of this response is fever, headache, chills, and muscle aches and joint aches. But the most significant consequence, the cytokine storm, can lead to shock and death. And if you don't mind, Ken, since we're trying to maximize the amount of teaching and education that we're doing for our listeners, do you mind telling them a little bit about what shock is? And I'm happy to jump in there, too, from the medical side. Well, shock is um, a situation in which the uh, brain and the body can't get enough oxygen and glucose and other important things from the blood supply because the blood is not moving properly through our circulatory system. During the kind of shock that I'm talking about, the cytokines that are produced open up our capillaries and the fluid leaks out into the tissue rather than going around and around the body and doing what it's supposed to and delivering um, the, the cells throughout the body. So rather than having our red blood cells being able to um, move quickly throughout the body and deliver oxygen to the brain and elsewhere, for example, now the, the movement of these cells becomes very sluggish because there's not enough fluid in the, in the vasculature and the circulatory system to allow them to go around. So we go into shock basically, which means that we can't function. Right. And then on the clinical side, somebody coming in with shock, I, I as the clinician, would see things like a, a rapid heartbeat and low blood pressure and altered mental status, meaning people being confused, not making sense, being delirious. Uh, when we run tests, we start to see things like organ dysfunction and organ failure and it's this kind of generalized circulatory collapse that is ultimately what leads to death. Is that a, a pretty accurate summary? That's correct. Because the brain, the brain can't get oxygen and glucose efficiently. The organs don't get them as well. And, they, and fluid builds up in all of these parts of the body where it shouldn't be. And so nothing works right. And so, and, and that is what is killing many of um, the patients with COVID-19 
uh, after about 14 days. There was a very moving article in the Sunday New York Times about two healthcare professionals in Wuhan, China, both 29, both mothers. One, one survived, one did not. The one who did not survive was starting to get better, seemed to be getting better, when a cytokine storm erupted and, and it was too much for her and she passed. Right. And there's no really, from a clinical side, no way to predict a cytokine storm like that. Is that right? It, it, it doesn't seem to be possible. That's correct. Right. Right. Now, some of the things that put people at risk are, for example, if they're, they have an inflammatory di- uh, disease um, and uh, they're prone to over-inflammatory re- reactions. Um, Maybe not cytokine storm, but more tissue destruction uh, in the lung that would uh, make the disease much more ser- serious. Right. And, and Ken, when you say inflammatory disorder, we're talking about things like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or these kind of autoimmune situations where your body's producing more inflammation than it should or ta- attacking organ systems that it should not, correct? That's part of the story. The other part is that some of us, because of our poor habits, stress, and other factors, are always at a higher level of inflammation, more prone to inflammation than others. And this is an unknown for each of us as to where that Im- who has that imbalance within them. Right. And this is a topic for another day, but that's part of the yes. idea about the link be, between stress and heart disease and, and things like that, right? That's part of the story. Yes, yes. it is. Yeah. Um, so, Ken, so far, the data is suggesting that children are not being affected by COVID-19 as frequently as adults are. Is this something related to the virus itself? Is it due to differences in immune systems between children and adults, or is there something else going on here? This is, uh, this is not unique to COVID-19. Children uh, do not uh, develop as, as significant an inflammatory response to viruses as do teenagers or adults. And we all know this, and we know this because um, children can get infected with Epstein-Barr virus, the virus that causes infectious mono, and, and they never know it. But a teenager and a, or an adult, wham, really affected. Chickenpox in a child is much more uh, mild than in adults. Hepatitis B virus, um, sometimes called serum hepatitis, is mild in ch- infants and children, but boy, in adults, it's, it's significant. A very different re- response in children than adults. And it has to do with the level of the inflammatory response that's initiated. Yeah, this is just so interesting. I can see why you've dedicated your career to this. You know, every virus acts differently, has its own characteristics, looks different to the body. Um, I want to ask you another question kind of related to spread about this, Ken. Um, What do we know about whether COVID-19 can be spread to animals such as our pets, like cats and dogs? We, We know this virus came from an animal into humans. 
Can it go the other way? There's one case of a dog that was infected. Um, it's the only case that I know of in the literature. The suggestion is that it probably doesn't go the other way, but um, the, the other suggestion is to keep distance from stray dogs and cats because you never know. And um, But chances are unlikely. Interesting. So with what happened in Wuhan with the virus going from an animal to humans, what prevents this type of animal to human transmission from occurring more frequently or even occurring with more deadly viruses than what we're already seeing? Well, let me just give another example of a deadly virus that jumped from an animal to man because of an unusual event, the hantavirus, which is a deadly infection of the lungs. Um, again, a virus that the disease is caused by the inflammatory response, and that's what kills people. Um, in the four corners of the United States region, that's uh, Utah, Wyoming, Colorado, Nevada, I believe, um, there was an outbreak of hantavirus because the mice that normally carry that virus became so abundant because during that during one year that they spread out of their normal environment into environments where people uh, went into. And so there was new contact. And so this virus was able to jump from the mouse to man. Fortunately, when the mice retracted, so did the, the, the virus problem. Unfortunately, with hantavirus, this, sorry, with the COVID-19, by bringing the um, reservoir animal out of its natural habitat into contact with humans, a, a virus that's normally... Um, science, science, science! Science, science! Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist Podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes! Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes! Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes... Yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. Sequestered into those animals, had the ability to jump to humans. Now, it might have been a mutant that was able to to grow in humans, whereas other of the same coronavirus was not as capable. But at any rate, that jump was made because the animal was brought into contact with man. Once it jumped into man, then it can spread from man to man by the mechanisms we talked about before. And one of the most significant issues about spread is that not a large percentage of people, 70% or so, 
have very mild symptoms or no symptoms, which means they may be making the virus, spreading the virus. They don't even know it. And we only know that somebody else has been infected when it's significant and serious in them. So for every 20 people who have even as as just a mild cold that's due to um, well, a, a significant cold due to COVID-19, um, there's 70 to 80 people who have no symptoms at all. Interesting. And this really contrasts with what we see with something like Ebola virus, right? Where when somebody gets it, very profound symptoms that that result often in death relatively quickly, right? Ebola is very different. Everybody that gets infected is going to significantly show the disease. Mm-hmm. It's similar to smallpox, which fortunately we don't see anymore. But everybody that got infected with smallpox showed symptoms of smallpox. So you know, you knew who was infected, and you could quarantine them effectively. Uh, unfortunately, you cannot do that effectively with COVID-19 Which because is, yeah. 80% of the pe- people won't tell you that they're infected. Right, which makes it so difficult to control the spread because it's being spread silently amongst that 70% or so who have no to mild symptoms, right, Ken? That's correct. So you mentioned earlier the that how long COVID-19 can exist on surfaces. What procedures would you say are effective for disinfecting these surfaces? Well, the um, the two easiest approaches are um, 70% alcohol, that's isopropanol or even ethanol. Ethanol is the same thing as drinking alcohol or grain alcohol. Diluted to 70%. It's a little bit stronger than what we drink, as in much stronger. But um, one of the easiest ways to use that is to get a spray bottle, mix it up in, in a spray bottle, and just spray the surface. Let it sit for a little bit. And if you want, you can rub it with a paper towel. The other um, effective um, means of cleaning is with uh, bleach, about a 5% solution of bleach. And again, a spray bottle works very, very well in disinfecting the surface in that regard. Bleach can be harmful, however, and so the alcohol might be better for many. Um, Those are the two approaches that, as a virologist, we would routinely use. In, in um, cleaning our surfaces in, um, for hands, se- the hand um, sanitizers, as long as they're 70% ethanol or isopropanol, are good. Um, vigorously washing our hands with soap uh, for an uh, extended period can work um, as well. Um, so these are a couple of memes. That's great, Ken. And I want to make sure that we send our, our listeners away with some really um, solid advice. So when you say isopropanol, 
they're more likely to see that on a on a store shelf as labeled as isopropyl alcohol. Is that correct? Yes, or rubbing alcohol. Or rubbing alcohol. That's great. And then when you say a 5% solution of bleach, that means one part bleach to 20 parts water, correct? That's correct. Yes. Right. So we don't want anybody bleaching out the color on their, their tabletops yeah. or their clothes or anything by using too much bleach. And then we right. see on social media, too, th this idea of using Tito's vodka or something else to make um, hand sanitizer or surface disinfectant. But as you said, basically the alcohol that's used for consumption is not going to be a high enough percentage of ethanol in order to adequately disinfect, right? That's very true. Yes. Um, you, uh, whereas Tito's um, vodka might be 70 or 80 proof, a grain alcohol is 200 proof. And 70% it would be considered 140 proof. Right. So that's pretty potent uh, alcohol if you want to really get down to it. That would burn, right. So yeah, yeah. yeah so the um, percentage is half the proof, correct? Yeah. Now, one, one other thing I want to talk about in terms of this kind of protection. People are wearing uh, latex gloves routinely. And as a virologist, one of the things I have to bring to mind to people is they can often give you a false sense of security. People put on latex gloves, and yes, it protects the hands, but then they touch their face. They touch doors, they touch surfaces, and they think that they're protected. But then, really, if if their if their gloves touch somebody else or touch their face, then they're not being protected. People are using masks. The masks have to be tight fitting to truly protect against um, a heavily aerosolized um, room. And so they're good, they're good, but they're not perfect. Gloves, as I say, you have to be realistic about the use of gloves and be careful as well. The nice things about hands, you can wash them. Yes, absolutely. And like anything, it's a matter of how they're implemented, right? We can wear gloves and you use them improperly or not thinking about what you're doing. And they're not only not helpful, they can be making things worse sometimes. That's correct. Right. So, Ken, um, how was the COVID-19 virus first detected? So, unfortunately, the virus was first detected because somebody got very, very ill. And a very astute physician realized that this wasn't the normal influenza, even though it appeared like the flu. And it was about the same time as a flu outbreak would uh, occur. When the virus was tested, it was shown not to be flu, but the closest thing it, uh, it resembled was SARS, and the disease resembled SARS. The test that was done was to look at the RNA genome, the nucleic acid genome of the virus, and it was um, compared to SARS initially and shown to be very, very similar. And very quickly, once the Chinese government admitted to themselves that this was a problem, they were able to isolate the virus and uh, analyze the sequence 
the, all the nucleotides that make up the RNA genome of this virus. And they submitted, they provided the sequence to the world and asked all scientists to look it over and to think about how they could um, develop a vaccine or an antiviral drug or some means to combat this virus. Wow. Uh, you know, as, as a clinician, I, I think it's worth emphasizing how sharp and astute that clinician who first recognized this must be, because in the midst of influenza season, where you're seeing these illnesses that look so much alike and yet also kind of different in, in each individual, it's almost like identifying a needle in a haystack. Well, the, the sad story to this is that physician passed away uh, of COVID-19 infection. Wow. Wow. That's, that's tragic. Yeah. Um, so, Ken, yeah. part of the issue about the global spread of this virus has been related to delays in our ability to test for it, particularly here in the U.S. when you compare the response in some of the other countries that have faced this. So aside from political issues potentially causing delays, can you tell us about how a, a test for a new virus like this is developed and how long this typically takes to create a test like that? Well. As I mentioned, the Chinese uh, published the sequence of the virus very, very early. And it was clear that the COVID-19 virus is very similar to its cousin, SARS. And so a lot of the technology, a lot of the concepts for developing uh, an assay to identify the virus was already known. But tooling up, and getting enough of the uh, the assays ready for prime time for the population takes a, uh, an investment, number one. And second of all, it has to be validated, meaning shown to really identify the right virus and not the common cold coronavirus, for example, the close cousin, um, to be able to distinguish between the, those two. and. Um, there has to be a distribution network. The test, um, people have to learn how to do the test. All of this takes some time, um, and people have to believe that it's necessary to do so. And it took a while before um, people believed that it was necessary to scale this up, then develop enough of the kits to distribute um, making sure that the kit actually works properly. Um, and uh, one of the things that did help speed up the um, detection was allowing research laboratories capable in academic centers, capable of doing these assays to essentially develop the assay on their own and implement them um, where necessary. In addition to commercial um, uh, manufacturing, biotech companies developing uh, these assays, the CDC developing these assays as, as well. So you say they're actually being developed locally at individual academic institutions in addition to being produced by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and by um, corporations that, that are in this business. 
Yes. Uh, for example, uh, again, in the New York Times, they were talking about um, some research laboratories at the University of Washington that have stepped up and are helping in, uh, uh, in Seattle uh, deal with the outbreak that's going on there. Wow. Very interesting. So we're hearing about a vaccine for COVID-19 being developed. Can you tell, the, tell us about the basics of how this is done, how long it takes, and what are the testing um, and regulatory process, what that looks like? Well, the regulatory process is being speeded up for this particular um, situation. The first test of a COVID-19 vaccine was actually today. March 16th. Oh, wow. This is great timing for this conversation. Yeah. And this vaccine is unique. It's never been used before in humans. Um, basically, the some of the genes of the virus, not the whole virus, but pieces of the virus, were separated out. And then the, and the pieces were the RNA itself, not the whole virus, not the proteins, but the part that would um, go into a cell and tell the cell to make the virus protein. That RNA is being used as the vaccine itself. So people are being immunized with RNA, not the viral RNA, but pieces of the viral RNA in a way that cells can use that RNA to make viral proteins. The viral proteins then will be uh, put into the body. The immune system sees those proteins in a safe manner. There's no virus at all in the, in the person. The body makes uh, antibodies and uh, white blood cells called T cells <clears throat> are activated to these pr the proteins that the cells make an answer to the uh, RNA vaccine, and these T cells then go out and kill infected cells, and the antibody blocks any free virus from going on to another cell to initiate an infection. Another company is developing a vaccine using in which they take the RNA of the virus, the genome, and they convert it to DNA, not the whole virus but the important parts for the immune system, and then inject that DNA into people. And again, the cells make the proteins, the uh, immune system sees these proteins and elicits a, a protective response as a result. These approaches using uh, the genome uh, as the basis, these nucleic acid vaccines can be made very quickly and scaled up to large amounts very quickly. And it's one of the reasons why um, this is the first approach that is being used uh, for a vaccine for COVID-19, these approaches of nucleic acid vaccines. I'm working on a, a, an alternative vaccine. Uh, the technology is, has been established. And basically, it's just, again, taking a sequence, only in this case, a, a protein sequence, and immunizing with that protein sequence to elicit the 
appropriate protective response. So that's going to take a little bit longer probably to get into humans. Um, but it is pretty amazing that a vaccine was developed so quickly and is in humans so quickly as well. But it's going to take that kind of speed to deal with this particular um, virus spread. And Ken, what would you say for the for the RNA-based vaccines or the DNA-based vaccines, what would you say the timeline might be to be able to get it into mass production and, and then out into the general population? Well, I think with the RNA vaccine and the DNA vaccine, well, this RNA vaccine, in two weeks, we'll know about safety and it, whether it develops the right time, type of immune response. And I would, uh, this, like I said, this particular vaccine can be made in large amounts very quickly. And I would say that before the summer, we'll have, we'll start seeing vaccines for that will be in larger trials. Got it. And then for the vaccine that you're working on, that's based on a, a protein sequence timeline on, on that, do you have any ideas yet? We're hoping that uh, we'll start uh, testing it in animals this summer, by this summer. And if that goes well, then by the fall, we will have something. What's nice about, we believe, our vaccine is that it also um, it elicits protection by activating those T, T lymphocytes that kill the infected cell. but we have evidence that it does not initiate an infl infl inflammation, inflammatory response. So it uh, may provide the right immune response dealing with the infection. Right. And, and one thing I, I want to make sure we kind of clarify around this talk about these vaccines, none of these are live virus vaccines, right? They're all using pieces of the virus to, to generate an immune response. That's correct. There's no live virus. Uh, there's no complete virus, even if it's killed or dead. These, um, these are really just parts. And the RNA and the DNA vaccines don't even have complete uh, uh, genomes. They're just a part of the genome that encodes proteins that will elicit the right protective type of response. And so what you're saying by not being a complete genome, they even in theory don't have any ability to replicate, correct? That's correct. They have no way by themselves to recreate a virus or to spread within uh, the body to cause a problem. Great. Thank you for clarifying that, Ken. Um, before we wrap up, this has been very eye-opening, very educational is there anything that you would like to add beyond what, what we've been talking about? Well, I think it's important to keep in mind that this is not the first um, virus that we've faced on a routine basis that has plagued the world. Influenza is, uh, spreads throughout the, the world each year and kills an immense and incredible number of people each year. Fortunately, we have a vaccine. We have vaccines. And we have antiviral drugs for flu. 
But the same precautions, the same hand cleanliness will help each of us protect ourselves against flu as it does COVID-19. Um, it's important to be cautious and careful, but unfortunately, the cat is out of the bag. And I believe that this virus is probably going to be around for a while. Hopefully, um, we will have means to prevent it sooner than later. And also, if we can um, restrict it by quarantine and by the procedures that are being done, um, we may be able to um, have enough people who are immunized, if, if even by infection, and to protect the entire population uh, from the spread of this virus. And speaking of that, you know, you're getting to the idea of getting enough herd immunity that we, whether it's through infection or through vaccination, that we can prevent this thing from being spread from person to person. Do you have any ideas around a timeline for when we might be able to test um, somebody's blood to determine whether they're immune to this and, and thus don't even need a vaccine? Well, the test to the test for um, uh, checking antibodies in the blood are already available and uh, can be done. The concept of herd immunity, it, interestingly, it's named after Dr. Herd, but the, the title is very interesting because the herd of people, if the herd of people who are the size of the herd that's immunized is large enough, then the virus cannot find somebody to infect and spread the virus further. And that's the hope and the goal that I have for the population, that herd immunity will be prevalent enough to so that the virus cannot find somebody to infect, expand, and spread to others. And hopefully we'll see that, especially if we have a vaccine. Right. Well, we certainly hope so. I have to tell you, I've been in this business a while, and I had never heard of Dr. Herd. I always under <laughs> understood it to be about herd immunity, you know, a group of people or a herd of cattle, and the idea that you have everybody immune and, and prevent the spread that way. So you've, you've taught me something absolutely new there. So I appreciate that, Ken. Uh, I want to thank you for being on our podcast. Your input around this has been very, very helpful. Uh, I may even propose that we do this again in a couple of weeks as things develop, especially around vaccines and and talk again a little bit more about some of that. I think we could take a deep dive and you know this is rapidly evolving and you have so much to offer. So uh, on behalf of everybody listening, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And thank you for having me. Absolutely, Ken. I, I wish you a good evening and stay safe and healthy. And you too. And to everyone else as well. Thank you, Ken. Good night. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. Be vigilant, but remain calm. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice.